welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Great Power Politics is back. As the Trump administration's national security strategy emphasizes, great power competition is re-emerging. With China's rise and Russia's revisionism, international relations promises to be very different in coming decades as countries challenge the American-led status quo. So the challenges for US foreign policy posed by this change are, are huge. Luckily, we have a crop of new books exploring the history of past power political transitions uh, to try and help us make sense of how states dealt with challengers throughout history and help us predict how this new era may unfold. Today is part one of our two-part series on great power competition. Joining us today is Joshua Schifferinson, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Boston University. He's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Since we're recording this podcast, uh, the other part of our two-parter, a little in advance of when it will be released, we're going to talk about some big picture happenings instead of recent news. Um, so let me just start by asking you, Josh, what surprised you most about US foreign policy in 2018? How little it changed despite the rhetoric. You know, we have a president, we have an administration that talks quite robustly over threatening retrenchment from Europe, talking about cutting deals left, right, and center. Yet the substance of American foreign policy, the substance of world politics actually looks rather like it did under the Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush years. We see a lot of rhetoric and yet little substantive change. Yeah, that's a good point. Zero new feet of border wall. Zero new feet of border wall, more funding for NATO, a continually robust American commitment to East Asia. It's same story, different narrator. Yeah, and not to beat a dead horse here, but since our last episode, since the episode before that, the pendulum has swung back again on Syria, and the New York Times actually issued a clarification saying that US troops are not being withdrawn from Syria, some equipment has been withdrawn from Syria. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, Trump going to Trump, but you know, evidently that means a lot less than one might have thought. Well, there's a good debate about this, right? I, I tend to look at the substance, I look at funding priorities, look at where physical things are, and that's where I see a lot of status quo behavior. A lot of people in this town, many people in academia too, really focus on the rhetoric and on the declared intention, but there's a really stark divergence between the rhetoric and the reality that people are only slowly coming to realize. Maybe it's time for a resurgence of the bureaucratic politics literature. Perhaps, or, or, or it's you know time to actually look at funding, actually tr you know follow the money. To quote an earlier period in American history. Well, uh, that's that's certainly a big change. So um, let me ask you instead: What were a couple of the most important foreign policy related trends in 2018, or what do you think a couple of the biggest events are? The things that in five years, ten years time, we will look back at 2018 and we will say that was genuinely a big change or that was a big event. Well, so one is going to be the North Korea deal, however, or North Korea process. Let's not even say call it a deal. It's too generous. One, one is the North Korea process. We don't really know how that's going to shake out yet, but people can make of it what they will. There are some positive signs. There are also some really starkly negative signs. But regardless of how this thing shakes out, people are going to have to grapple with its consequences in the years ahead. I think that was, uh, for me, one of the biggest departures from past behavior. Yeah, and it's particularly interesting that because as you started out by saying the North Korea deal, but there's no actual deal That's or right. anything. We, we're conceptualizing it as there was something there. If there were a deal, it would have 
it right. would turn out maybe to be a big deal. Let, let's call it a process, right? We, we have more higher level diplomacy than uh, certainly in the last 20 some odd years. We can debate what that process is getting, get, getting at, but the, the actual creation of some kind of dialogue is novel. So let's look ahead into 2019. And this episode will be released just about the end of January, two full years into the Trump administration, two full years to go. What bold prediction are you making for 2019 in foreign policy? Oh man, that, that's a terrific question. I'm going to make a bold prediction that says nothing will change. <laughs> that's going to, you know, that, that that may not be consensus. Phil, but I, Phil Tetlock is smiling down at you, Josh. Oh, the, the, you're going to you're going to predict the base I, rate. I, I think it's the okay. first time Phil Tetlock has ever been mentioned in <laughs> in, in context of my research or my thinking. I, I I think we're going to see a lot more rhetoric. I think we're going to see a lot more. Uh, hand wringing about American foreign policy, but I actually think there's going to be more uh, rhetorical broadsides broadcast across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. We're going to see that, but I actually think there's going to be very little substantive change in part because many of the issues that people are talking about have already been resolved or addressed substantively. We see the formation of a bipartisan consensus now saying that China is an adversary. We see a, a pretty robust statement that says Russia should be counterbalanced by NATO and beyond. So in that regard, there's actually not a lot of maneuvering room. You know, I, I want to push back just a little sure. on that though, because I think there are a couple of areas where I see this administration having some potential to actually, well, change US foreign policies. Sure. Perhaps the wrong way to put it, not change it writ large, but on non-proliferation agreements mm. and on Iran. I think mm -hmm. those are both mm -hmm. areas where senior advisors are very motivated. Trump himself is kind of uh, supportive of these issues. For me, that's where I think we could see change in 2019. Well, so I, I would, I would agree with that. I think on Middle Eastern issues in particular, like I, I, as a great power politics person, my brain glosses over the Middle East. It's it's a it's a big gaping hole in my knowledge. So I, I defer to you on that. I think that's 100% right though. And likewise on proliferation issues, we see this administration being even more hawkish on proliferation than many others across time and space. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I think um you know, bold bold prediction, nothing's going to happen, but the um what the one kind of question I have is about the effect of the 2020 campaign mm. on Trump's behavior, because I, my sense is that the border wall government shutdown is just his first volley of going right back to the well that got him elected the first time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, I, you know, pulling out of Syria, pulling out of Afghanistan, you know, some of the same themes that he hit. You know, Iraq was a stupid mistake. We didn't get paid. You know, all that sort of stuff. Why won't he try? The, he hasn't had any new thoughts that I can tell. So I think he may go right back to those. Now, does that do anything more than turn the rhetoric knob up? Maybe not. But maybe he will pull out of Afghanistan and Syria more seriously because he actually sort of is making a big deal out of that. Well, I will say one thing that we haven't uh, spoken of yet that I think could be important is we, we see signs that the economy might be weakening, right? And if there is a downturn in the economy, it's fairly clear that the big opportunity to cut spending is going to be the defense budget, right? And with an administration that's already inclined to leave Afghanistan and already disinclined to do more in the Middle East, and perhaps even inclined to buck past allies in some way, have some preference in that regard. You could imagine a economic recession during uh, with a looming election resulting in an attempt to cut some spending to stimulate economic growth. 
Well, whatever happens, it's going to be an exciting year, I am sure. Um, but let's move on to our main topic of the day, um, because I think we all are starting here in Washington and politics to talk about this idea of great power competition. Uh, the national security strategy, the Trump administration's NSS, was pretty clear that they see this as the future of US foreign policy. But I want to start with a little background and context for our listeners. Um, so you wrote a book on past power transitions. And I want to start by asking you why you wrote the book. What's the big question that you're trying to answer here? Well, speaking of bureaucratic politics, the reason I wrote the book is I had to write a dissertation to get my PhD. But that, but why I picked this topic is a really important one. And you know, I, I was casting about for dissertation topics, that, which became this book at the time of the 0708 economic crash, right? When people in the media, people in the think tank world were discussing the end of the American era, the end of the American empire, the end of whatever term of art you wish to use, people were discussing American decline. And there was a lot of hand wringing. Oh, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. But no one really talked about in what ways it was bad, how we think about the negative consequences. And in fact, when you start pushing on that, you start saying to yourself, is it really terrible not to be as much of a top dog or perhaps even top dog. I mean, there are some bad cases of this, right? I don't think anyone wants to be Athens of the Peloponnesian War, but at the same time, Britain doesn't have a terribly bad quality of life after the end of the British uh, era. So th there's some interesting variation in this. And so when I started pushing on this, it begged the question, well, how do we think about rise and decline dynamics? And the, the answer I came up with was to look at how relatively rising states treat relative declining states in the course of their decline. Try to get at the question of is decline good, bad, indifferent? And I use those terms loosely because obviously we want to avoid normative judgments here. But is decline on the whole beneficial or negative for one's security by looking in part at how rising states treat decliners during the course of their decline? Yeah. And actually, that raises sort of a couple of, uh, we don't usually do methodological points on the podcast, but I do want to I do want to quickly flag, you mentioned relatively declining, mm. relatively rising, because we're not talking about something like China shooting for the moon and the US is suddenly sliding into the gutter here, That's right? right? That's this right. is relative. This is all relative. And in fact, almost all cases of decline that we talk about historically are relative shifts in the distribution of power. They're not absolute situations. There, there are some exceptions for that, right? Obviously, the Soviet Union collapsed. That's an absolute decline. But prior to the collapse, it was in relative losses compared to the US and compared to its own uh, past position relative to the US. Likewise, Britain relative to the US. Likewise, uh, the various European empires in the 19th century relative to each other. So almost all declines are relative uh, that we care about in world politics. Well, so you argue in the book that uh, when countries are a rising power, when they're expanding right. and feeling their oats, um, that they can choose to either be cooperative or predatory That's right. towards other declining powers. Um, what do you mean by that? Sure. So, so by predatory and cooperative, or what I call supportive in the book as well, I use those terms interchangeably. By predatory, I mean a rising state tries to undercut an existing great power, try to winnow away its advantages, change, degrade, undermine its position as a great power, perhaps even push it out of the great power ranks, out of the tier of what are the strongest states in the system. And by supportive behaviors, I really, or cooperative behaviors, I mean efforts that slow or try to slow roll shifts in the distribution of power and maybe even try to help a declining state keep its position as a great power, right? I mean, let me highlight a couple of examples, right? I think we would all agree 
that the United States tried to prey upon and undercut the Soviet Union as a great power until the end of the Cold War. I think that's a pretty fair statement. Conversely, we could point to the Anglo-American rapprochement, certainly after World War II, where the US tried to help Great Britain maintain a prominent position in Europe. And lest we forget it, Wilhelmine Germany helped Austria-Hungary an awful lot before the First World War. So there are some cooperative and supportive relationships um, in rise and decline scenarios. So a question there for me, Josh, is how the heck do you know which one the rising country is doing? Because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in so much of international relations, intentions are so hard to gauge. Right. And even wars, invasions, and right. not to sneak a peek at our next part in our great power competition, but we'll be talking to Stacey Goddard who right. makes an argument based on these very rhetorical kinds of concepts. How, 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 do, how do we know if someone's being supportive of us? Well, usually I just ask other... the magic eight ball, but, but yeah, you know, well. when the magic eight ball doesn't give an answer, what I end up doing is try to look at how their policies interact with one another. For example, uh, intentions are very hard to know in world politics, but there are some concrete behaviors that we would say, you know what, that looks like a really problematic behavior. For example, arms racing, especially if you're trying to shift, not just maintain your position, but actually try to get a leg up on the on another country, that's a fairly predatory behavior, right? Trying to make the other country work harder to maintain its relative position or perhaps even shifting the military distribution of power in your favor over time. That's problematic for another uh, great power. Conversely, offering economic assistance or military aid or offering an alliance, we would all say is a fairly cooperative, pretty nice behavior, right? It kind of subsidizes uh, that declining state's position relative to other countries. Yeah. So you you do a lot of archival research to the book, obviously. And so you're looking back at this and you're much, you're able to gauge a sort of intentions much better than perhaps people at, at the time would be. Right. Um, right. But what overall from, from all of these case studies, what do you think it is that drives rising powers to choose these strategies? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was a surprising behavior, a surprising outcome. I didn't go into the book with the expectations that I, that, with the outcomes that I ultimately found. What I, what I found most dramatically is when rising states think they need decliners or declining states around to offset other great powers, right? It, it, it makes sense when you say it, when you have common, uh, potential adversary in mind, maybe the declining state can help. And that's a, that, that makes a lot of sense when you say it, but it's not often how we think about rise and decline dynamics, right? If there are third or fourth countries that rising states need to worry about, that's when you get the cooperative, supportive behaviors. But on the other hand, when a declining state is what's standing between a rising state and kind of hegemony or there are no other great powers around that the declining state can help with, that's when we get the lopping off the head behaviors, those predatory, nasty stuff. How does geography fit into the game. Hugely. Uh, geography really matters because when a rising state is trying to figure out can a decliner be of help against another country, the rising state very reasonably looks at the geography and says, well, does it look like the declining state is near or have bases or have uh, a geographic position that can help offset those other states that I care about? So it's hugely important. To, it's actually about relative access. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the, the case study in the book that's the end of the Cold War. This is clearly a predatory case. But perhaps could you just talk us through that a little briefly about what it was the U.S. actually tried to do here? Sure. Uh, did the U.S. cause the collapse of the Soviet Union? 
No, the U.S. did not cause the collapse of the Soviet Union. Many people like to claim that. I think Bill O'Reilly's written a couple of books. Reagan to, spent them into the ground. Reagan spent that's, them. That's what happened. Spent Just them, get over it. No, they didn't spend them to the ground. They spent them into Siberia, into the tundra. We have to remember the context here. Uh, what the United States did at the end of the Cold War is actually a fairly rational strategy. It's consistent across the Reagan and H.W. Bush administrations. The U.S. was watching uh, Soviet economic problems, social malaise, political dissolution mount and adopted an increasingly predatory strategy as those changes occur. For example, in the Reagan years, you begin with a pretty robust American military buildup then an arms race designed to shift the distribution of power in the United States' favor. When, of course, we see later see arms control agreements, but we know from American records and Soviet records as well that everyone understood these were asymmetric deals uniquely favorable to the United States. In fact, in his memoirs, George Shultz, the Secretary of State, famously records an exchange and gleefully records this exchange with Mikhail Gorbachev, where Gorbachev says, these deals are weighted in your favor. And Shultz records his reply going, I'm weeping for you. You know, these are like, you know, people are gleeful about this. And then when Soviet problems really mount and we see the revolution of 89 begin to occur, and that had an economic component to it as well, we see American foreign policymakers really seeing this as an opportunity to roll the Soviets out of Eastern Europe and begin to move many of the former members of the Warsaw Pact, but members of the Soviet sphere of influence into uh, at least closer to the American camp. It's funny because I feel like this runs counter to the call it the common narrative of the right. end of the Cold War, right? right? Which was that you know Reagan beat the Soviets, and then George H. W. Bush sort of helped to manage a peaceful transition, uh, you know, Soviet collapse. Sure. But it sounds like that's not really what you're describing. Well, I, I I I think a lot of the research in the end of the Cold War, at least, has been focused on how peaceful it was. And that obscures a lot of our understandings about the deals that underline the peacefulness, right? You can still have highly predatory behavior and really aggressive behavior without war occurring. Indeed, if you're a state that wants to change the status quo, that's actually your ideal outcome, isn't it? So I think people are struck by the visuals of American and Soviet leaders meeting. We're struck by the peacefulness of the 89 revolution, struck by the fact that there was no war that occurred. But that doesn't change the fact that if you go one step below the surface, we see everyone and their mother at this point in time discussing how this is a massive American victory on massively favorable American terms. And at least on the Soviet and Russian side, a lot of frustration over this matter. You know, as the only one in this room right now who is actually uh, processing uh, these events in live uh, time, right. um, uh, the question that, that your case narrative raises for me is actually the sort of the wisdom of the approach that Reagan took. A mm -hmm. lot of people at the time were nervous about that kind of cowboy right. uh, mentality, as it was labeled by many people, um, because you know, yes, the U.S. was rising. I think everyone believed the U.S. was stronger all told than the right. Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union had thousands of nuclear weapons oh. and wasn't trusted to be as fully, you know, rational as maybe one would hope in an adversary. And and so, you know, these kind of strategies carry risk. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it raises obviously sort of the a question for maybe a couple questions from now about China and how to deal with them, oh, yeah. but but the other question there for me is nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. and and has you know over the scope of studying great powers, uh, how much does nuclear weapons change the conversation? Mm -hmm. nu nuclear weapons change the conversation in important ways, but not in fundamental ways, right? With nuclear weapons, 
a rising state that thinks it's going to get after a declining state has to really do so cautiously, right? It, uh, as my dissertation chair put it, you have to do it like porcupines make love very carefully. Maybe a bad <laughs> comment on my dissertation chair's part, but it, the the idea is there, right? You have to operate well below a threshold that you think is going to trigger a crisis. Now, that, that's pretty consistent with other great power politics, even in non-nuclear eras. But nuclear weapons really make the consequence of getting this calculation right start. They introduce a real element of caution. Parenthetically, I think had the Soviet Union not had nuclear weapons, I think we had been in a uh, non-nuclear world. I think, A, we might very well have seen a war. And then, B, the scope of American ambitions probably would have been greater as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. So really, the only case in your book involving two nuclear powers is is pretty much the Soviet Union, uh, US. Right. Yeah, because the the British American right. one is just is just not it's the wonky. same with a shared nuclear yeah. program. Although parenthetically, it, with the British American relationship, it was not a shared program at the time. It, it, you know, or, or rather, it was shared. And one of the things the Americans did in forty five, which mightily pissed off the British, was actually tear up the agreements that said we're going to share nuclear weapons with the Brits. So. There's an element of politicking over nuclear weapons, but it doesn't affect the relationship. But part of the reason I really like the Soviet, the end of the Cold War Soviet case is we are in a nuclear world and I think policymakers and academics alike need to grapple with how nuclear weapons do affect great power politics. Well, you know, I think that actually might even answer Medic's question, which was, you, you know, you have all these different cases in the book. Which ones do you think are most relevant for policymakers today? Mm -hmm. Is it just that end of the Cold War case? No, I, I, I think the Anglo-American and Anglo-Soviet relationship where I talk about how America and the Soviet Union dealt with the decline of the British in the early post-war period, I think that case is highly relevant as well, as are the 19th century cases, right? What, what all these cases do... Uh, are, are attuned policymakers and analysts of the broad themes, and then you have to contextualize it. So I think the Soviet case is the, certainly the most contextualized for the world today on some issues. But I think the fact that we have multipolar environments in prior periods also helps us understand the dynamics of rise and decline in multipolar environments as seem to be occurring today. Right. Yeah, because the uh, the model at the end of the Cold War yeah. is very much bipolar. And, right. and again, as the national security strategy has made clear, that is not the world that we are living in Correct. today. So we have to hybridize these things, right? I, I think the dynamics of rise and decline that I can point to it are you know vary across bipolar and multipolar environments. And it, within that, we only have one case of rise and decline in a nuclear world. So we have to combine these things. But if my project does nothing else, is to at least raise a series of questions that people need to grapple with, uh, or I think people need to grapple with in the years ahead, because rise and decline is real. It occurs. We also are in a nuclear realm. How we think about this, especially in coming multipolarity, is a real humdinger. Before we move on, let me ask, pick right up on that multipolarity. Mm. How, how will we know when we have one? Like, like, how multipolar do you consider the world today, Josh? And how, and, and, and what, are we getting more, more, less, more? I mean, what's your thought? I, I, I think the regions of the world where we see great power politics, it is already a multipolar environment. I, I am very comfortable saying that East Asia today is already a multipolar environment. There are at least three, perhaps as many as five, what I would consider great powers in the US, China, uh, Japan, perhaps India, perhaps even Russia, which we shouldn't forget is also an East Asian power. So. There are perhaps uh, three up to five great powers, depending how you want to slice and dice these things, but we're in a multipolar world. You can look at that just in terms of sheer economic production, look in terms of technology, look in terms of military spending, military capability. Uh, this is a multipolar world by any definition. 
So the other big question that if we've decided it's a multipolar world, we've decided great power competition is back, is the US declining? Yes. The US is in relative decline, period. Uh, I, I think the fact that we've declared the national security strategy, the fact that we have the National Intelligence Council declaring multipolarity as coming hard and fast, that was five years ago. We are in a period of relative decline. We are not like Athens with the barbarians at the gates or Rome with the barbarians at the gates. We're not like Mikhail Gorbachev, Soviet Union with the empire falling all around us, but we are in a period of relative decline. And the more American policymakers think that the situation is not changed, the more that we fail to acknowledge that, relatively speaking, the distribution of power is changing, the more problems we're going to encounter. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm reminded of that phrase, uh, decline is a choice, Yeah, um, which I loathe. But, um, but I think what's interesting, if you just think of that statement as sort of data about the way people see the world, I think you can see a way in which people are understanding the world that's different from what you just said, right. which is if you look at the United States vis-a-vis -vis any other power, it doesn't look very multipolar. Right. Since we're, 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 we're the largest declining power ever in history, I guess right. you might say. Right. So you look one-on-one -on -one and we're, we're as big or bigger than 10 years ago or 20 years ago okay. against any individual team. Uh, but if you look at the fact that there are, other than China maybe, right. but, um, but if you look at the fact that so many countries out there are all growing at the same time, I think that's the way in which that argument is just wrong. I mean, right. yes, we don't have to choose to not tangle with China because they're rising. We can still kick China's butt in a sense. Right. But but China, India, Pakistan, right. Russia, Japan, they're like, wait, they, we're small compared to the whole total now. Right. Oh, I, I, I like playing the, you know, the, the, does the behavior match the rhetoric test, right? And if you look at what the US had to do to feel that it was sustaining its existing security commitments around the world today, around the world, they're just, it just requires a lot more than it did five, 10 years ago. Ask a naval officer if they want to sail carriers to the Taiwan Straits again, like in 96. I think they would say we can do it, but whereas in 96, 95, it was not that much of a deal. And that alone suggests that there's a shift occurring that the US is in some kind of relative decline. Doesn't mean we're not number one. It just means that we're not as much number one as in the past, and that change itself matters. Somebody on Twitter last week, Aaron Simpson, I think, put it as basically when you've been top dog for so long, even someone starting to catch up feels like you're losing. That's right. Yeah. Which is probably just another way of putting that, that idea. That's right. And and when they're doing more than just starting to catch up, when they've actually cut into the lead quite a bit, which is what I would argue has occurred, uh, you pay attention even more. So as I read your book and as I read your theory, it would suggest for policymakers that the best path for the US is to try and make ourselves useful to a rising China. Is mm -hmm. that a fair interpretation? I, I think if we're in a multipolar world, that's exactly right. I think mean, it's entirely right. If we are in a world where China has other threats to worry about, and I think there are other threats China worries about much closer to home, then the best thing the US could do is be to remind China that the US is an awfully handy partner to have in solving some of those issues. I mean, I don't see how you could argue that the United States is not useful to China. I mean, we we uh, are their biggest trading partner. Mm -hmm. We uh, undergird the liberal international order on right. which they rely to have gotten wealthy and fat and happy. And 
eventually we potentially hold the key to Taiwan. So right. how could we not be the most useful engine for well, China? I'll, I'll build that up even more. We all, you know, back in the 90s, we talked about the US keeping the cork in the Japanese bottle in the also US that. Chinese relationship. We can talk about how the US is actually very useful for China in structuring a stable external environment, mitigating Chinese tensions with India, with Japan, right? And lesser, lesser issue Russia there. And so now, but the question is, can we be useful to China if we actually say we're going to be useful to China? I think no. I right. mean, I think that, the, the, the idea problem. of the grand bargain, you can't say you're going to be useful. Oh, we're going to give you Taiwan. Don't right. worry, because then you're not useful anymore. You have to hold these cards back. You have to, you have to hold these cards back. The other thing you have to do, which uh, Emma and Trevor, you fully recognize that we've all written on this, is you have to avoid adopting a purely adversarial relationship, right? And And that's the humdinger in American foreign policy today. We have this nascent bipartisan consensus saying China is a threat and must be counterbalanced. That's actually going to be really problematic because it's going to say to China, there's no scenario or no plausible scenario where the US will be useful to me on any primary security issues. Yeah. So so basically, if you adopt the strategy of confrontation, you are trying to undermine China Correct. everywhere. Correct. Which pushes back on the logic of the argument. Yeah. Friendly competition. Friendly competition. Friendly competition. Look, when we have had prior periods of multipolarity with rise and decline, there were a lot more fluid diplomatic relations. And that on the whole uh, was pretty good for individual declining states, right? It allows them to play sides off each other, to bargain and gain goodies when necessary. And I think we need to uh, encourage an American foreign policy mindset that allows for fluid diplomacy. Is that possible in an era of mass media? I do think it's possible, but it requires managing expectations and framing the conversation very well. And right now, because I don't hear many uh, folks in positions of authority talking in this way, it's going to be very, very hard. Yeah. I mean, I th think it also certainly requires a, a remaster frame, right. you know, that, but, but the other thing is probably requires a State Department. Yeah. So well, we might want to add a few more diplomats to the team if we're going to be this busy. It requires a State Department, requires a uh, intellectual shift in terms of how the U.S. conducts business. Part of the problem is that the U.S. has been number one for so long, as uh, it was mentioned a little while ago, that any change looks really scary. Any change to the status quo looks really scary. And we see this in this rhetoric over a new Cold War, which I just think is you know, mostly hogwash, frankly, and I would use a stronger term if it wasn't being recorded. But w w we see this attitude where any competition is immediately threatening, and that's not inherently the case. Well, I think that's a great place to stop for now. Uh, thanks, Josh, for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and join us next time when we'll be talking to Stacey Goddard. Uh, we'll be talking more about great power competition and her book on how states read intentions during power transitions. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you like the show, please do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.